So the team is in Panama. As of yet, we're not at war with Panama. That's good, but there's two days left, so it's still early. Um, Last week, the pastor was speaking about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing conviction um, in our lives when we sin, and the difference between conviction, which leads us towards God, and condemnation, which actually leads us away from Christ and drives us away. And today we're going to take a look at a very familiar passage that talks about the practical way that the Holy Spirit works in us as we live this life, as we live a life worthy, hopefully, of the calling we've received, and as we live day to day, a very practical look at what the Christian life looks like. This is a critical passage. If you don't understand this passage, you don't understand the Christian life. And so we need to be uh, very aware of it and go through it. Okay, let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and Paul writes to the Galatians and says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So what the Apostle Paul is talking about, what this passage is saying, is that there are basically two ways that we can live. And actually, we tend to live, as we live this type day to day, this is not just talking about you live one way or you live the other. It's talking about how we make individual choices. And we can make these choices in the flesh, or we can make them in the spirit. And one way yields one set of results, and one way yields a dramatically different set of results. Uh, as you go through this passage, the, the kind of the, if there's a theme for today, it's two. I broke up into several sections talking about two, two something. And the first thing is two natures. There's two natures inside of us. So we know that in the beginning, we were made in God's image. The Bible is very clear. We were made with the Im- in the image of God. But that image was marred at the fall, right? Adam and Eve sinned, and that image has been, it hasn't been erased, but it's been defaced, and it's been changed, and it's been marred, and it isn't the same. It's kind of like, this isn't exactly NASCAR country, but it's pretty, racing is pretty popular around here. And have you ever seen a race where a car has something go wrong in the suspension, and one of the front wheels is locked up? Not, not a blown tire, but it's locked up and it won't turn. And this guy's got to drive around either half the track or three-quarters of the track, or if he's lucky, not very far. And he's just pushing that wheel. And he can drive. The car drives. It goes straight. He's probably driving 30, 40 miles an hour, which you should never do in your Buick sedan. But he's, he's pushing it along, and he's getting there. And it kind of works, but it doesn't really work. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It doesn't work the way it's intended to work. That's what it's like. Our, the, the image of God has been defaced, and we go through life, and we're not living the way we're designed to live, but this is the way we live now. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we have this sinful nature now at the fall, but God's nature is still there too. The image of God doesn't disappear. It's just been altered. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, Romans 7, 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now at salvation, things begin to change. We're regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he brings us to life. We were dead, and now we're alive. And you can't do that by yourself, whether you're whether Calvinist or Arminian, whatever the position is, we all agree that we're dead in our sins, and we need the Holy Spirit to come bring life. And the Holy Spirit comes, and he does it. He brings life, he regenerates us, and he changes us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, a little later in that same passage, says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So now, after salvation, though, the Holy Spirit begins to work with us. Now it's cooperatively. Before salvation, it wasn't cooperative. Okay? He had to save us. We were dead. Now we're alive, and now it's cooperatively, and he expects something of us. This is the process we call sanctification. It's growing up into our salvation. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in us to do that. But we're told to do it. It seems like a paradox, but we're told both. First Peter uh, 2, 1 to 5 says, So put away all malice and all deceit. I'm sorry. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and, envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So at salvation, the Holy Spirit fills us and begins this process of growth. Before salvation, we're dead, and we're unable to save ourselves, but now we're alive in Christ, and now we're expected to, what does Paul say, work out your salvation. This is not works righteousness or works salvation. It's working out. It's growing. Salvation comes by grace. We have nothing to do with it. But now something is expected of us. And we're supposed to grow up, Peter says, into our salvation with the help of the Holy Spirit who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But the flesh is still present. So before you know that God's image is still present. But now at salvation, we're saved, we're changed, we're regenerated, but the flesh is still there. It doesn't leave. We're not perfect yet. That happens later, right, in Christ's second coming. But for now, we're still imperfect, and that human nature, that flesh is still there. There's an old anonymous poem, Two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the other I hate. The one I feed will dominate. The nature we feed inside of us, these two natures, this is, we're going to talk about this just right next, the two battles, right? The nature we feed is the one that will dominate the other. And it's up to us to fight that battle with the, with the Holy Spirit. So there are two natures that live in us now. And there are two battles. The first battle was before salvation. Before salvation, we were at war with God. Whatever you may think, you weren't a good person. There's no such thing. 
there is a relative scale of humanity, but that's really not what God calls good. Okay, we were at war with him, the Bible says. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, that's not your best friend. The word alienated, what does that mean? It means separated, right? Anyone know people, family members who are alienated from each other? It means they're separated. They won't get along. They can't get along. They're enemies. They're hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You don't need to be reconciled unless you're first apart. Right? It's not necessary unless you're first apart. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, he actually paid the price for them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we have to deliver that message that God is willing to reconcile. And then in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were enemies of God. Not kind of kissing cousins or loose friends or whatever. We were enemies of God before salvation, he says. We were reconciled to God while we were enemies by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So at salvation, we made peace with God. We turned from being oriented towards sin and selfishness, and now we're oriented toward God and holiness. And the process of sanctification starts. It doesn't mean you never sin, and it doesn't mean that before you never did anything good. But before your mindset, your bent, everything was towards sin. You really didn't have a problem with it. And we have problems with certain sins, but we all have lots of sins, especially before salvation, that we don't really think are an issue. And you look around and you can see in the culture, more and more and more, we're seeing that bar changing, right, for what is considered normal and acceptable behavior. It's not a problem, right? That's the orientation. We shouldn't be surprised. Why would we be surprised when people who are, are pagans exercise their job description? They believe what they should believe. But at salvation, that's changed. And now we look at those failures as failures. And we wanna, we're oriented towards God and towards holiness. And that we're going in a different direction. But now, just when we thought we found peace, a new battle emerges. Right? The second battle. This is the battle against the flesh. And this is even harder than the first one. First one was easy because we were doing what we wanted. This one is tough because there's a fight going on inside of us. Our whole lives have been gratifying ourselves for, our, you know, for our enjoyment, and we've kind of liked it. It's, although we were never quite right. We talked about that before, right? Things weren't exactly the way they should be. G.K. Chesterton talked about joy and sorrow with the Christian and the non-Christian, and he said for the believer or for the unbeliever rather, joy can only ever be peripheral because central to them is sorrow. They don't have the answers. They don't have Christ. But for the Christian. Joy can be peripheral, and sorrow can be peripheral, but at the center, there's always joy. Joy can never be central to the Christian, because we know the end. We know that God saved us. We know that he loved us, and we know his purpose for us. But the flesh isn't going to give up so easily. It doesn't like what's happened. It doesn't like a new boss, a new sheriff in town, someone who's in charge. And if it weren't for the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we wouldn't have a chance. Peter talks about this war. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then in Romans chapter 7, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, not because it's incredibly encouraging, um, although it is. Um, It's actually very frustrating when you read this, but I love this passage of Scripture because when I read it, I can hear myself saying it. It, it. It meets me where I am. This is a really powerful piece of Scripture, and this is the Apostle Paul writing. And and just feel his frustration as he talks. And we all know, we're all familiar with this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good in in condemning me. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not saying it's someone else's fault. He's talking about me and me. It's no longer me, but it's sin within me. So he's saying it's no longer me, but it's me. It's these two natures he's talking about. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells inside me. So again, he's talking about the war inside of himself. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he's talking about those two battles that are going on. And Paul was, the encouraging part of that scripture is Paul is experiencing that. So that removes some of the self-condemnation that we feel sometimes, and we can face it with the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, in his book Holiness, he said this. He said, a true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. Now that word known there doesn't mean like your reputation. Like you can know him, you can know someone's on that team because of their uniform, or you can know him because of this. It means he's, no, he's tested, he's proven. He can be proven. I, Amy, Amy and I, this August, we've married 30 years if she lets me live. Um, it's up in the air. Um, so you could pray for me. Um, but only for six more months, so don't worry. <laughs> After that, whatever. <laughs> but I know Amy. Okay, She's known by the characteristics that I've observed over not just our relationship before we got married, but over 30 years since then. And that's her reputation. I know I can trust her. I know she's faithful. I know she's reliable. I know all the characteristics that that make up Amy. She's known by those things. She's been proven by those things. And and J.C. Ryle is saying here that the man, the Christian, can be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. That's what proves what's going on. There's a warfare going on within. Now, the old fight was a bad fight, and you had to lose it. We needed to lose that fight. But this is a good fight. First Timothy 6, 9-12, a very familiar passage. And I'm going to read a little bit before the, the part we're talking about here because it's important. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That word take hold there, the Greek word, it means to grasp securely, to seize something. Not just to say, well, now I'm a Christian, but to seize that Christianity, to seize that eternal life. When it talks about people in, in the Greek, it means to literally arrest someone. To apprehend them. And Paul says, he's not just telling Timothy, hey, you know, work at, he's saying, seize your salvation. 
Seize that eternal life. Make that the central core of who you are. So many times in the church, especially the modern church, we find that our Christianity is just one of those things that we do, right? We're us in the middle, and we've got our family, our job, our Christianity, this and that, the church. But that's not what the Christian life is about. In the Christian life, that is central. That is who I am. Or it's not. It's black and white. Either it is or it isn't. And Paul says, seize that. Make that the center of who you are. Everything else revolves around that. And if it doesn't, then you're not serving the Lord. When he says, fight the good fight in this passage, a lot of times this passage is used to talk about standing up for good doctrine and true doctrine. That's not exactly what Paul's saying right here. Earlier in this chapter, he talks about false teachers, and he certainly encourages Timothy to stand up to false teachers and false doctrine, and those, those principles are true. But in this passage right here, if you look closely, he's talking to Timothy first about those who desire riches, right? And if you go back to the works of the flesh, you'll see that envy, jealousy, pride, those things that have to do with, that are certainly related to desiring riches are there. And he's warning him about this particular work of the flesh. And he's saying... People have gone after them. They've chased after the love of money. It's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. You don't have to have money for it to be a root of evil in your life. You can just want it really, really, really bad. Right? It can lead you to all kinds of things, whether you have it or not. And he's warning Timothy, and he says, but as for you, flee from these things. Don't just say, I'm not going to do it. Flee from them. Identify them, see them, and go the other way. And he says, fight. This is the good fight. This is the fight we need to fight in our hearts. So the question this morning for us is, is there a fight in me? Is there a fight in you? Is a fight going on? And if not, why not? What's happened? Why is there no fight? When the enemy is attacking you, right, when there is a fight, you can pretty much, why is he attacking you there with that instance? Do you know what I found? And you all found the same thing, I'm sure. There are certain things that I'm just not tempted to. The enemy never attacks me with those things, right? He always attacks me with things that I'm tempted to, the things that I have a proclivity towards. That's what he attacks me with. Why? Because he's not stupid. And sometimes we are. That's the biggest sign. Where should I be focusing my my Christian walk, my devotions, my prayer? On the areas I'm being attacked in. Because they show the enemy sees a weakness in me. If you're a soldier and you're sent off to some corner and say, hey, guard this, guard this pass, guard this area, and you're sent with 20 men and you're there, and you think, this is a waste of time. What am I doing here? No one's coming here. And you look up and 90% of the enemy army is coming at you. What do you think right away? Somebody thinks this is pretty important. Right? This must be important. If the enemy's attacking you, that's what's important. If there's not a fight, start one. Right? Let's start to fight. Look at those things. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You know, I tell you what. You decide, if you're not doing this now, you decide that starting today, I was going to say tomorrow, but start today, you're going to spend 30 minutes praying and reading your Bible. Not doing it and then drifting off into thinking about 30 minutes devoted time, and you watch the fight begin with your flesh. You're tired. The kids are annoying. The kids are really annoying. All kids are really annoying. Isaac. No, but I mean, there's things that happen that come that try your patience, right? And this, the enemy will attack. The flesh will attack. They will, it will distract you as soon as you do this. Go to work tomorrow morning. And that guy that comes in every Monday morning and talks to you, comes in your office or you talk to him and he says, hey, how was your weekend? Try tomorrow, instead of just saying, oh, pretty good, say, it was pretty good. I went to church yesterday and worship was great. I really felt God speaking to me. Just say, or just say, 
We went to church. You know, we go every Sunday, and my kids love it. Just say that. Just begin to create. You don't have to. Look, it's not your job to save him. You don't have to beat him to death with your five-pound Bible with the study guide and the Greek New Testament. You don't have to do that. You don't have to save him. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He'll do that. But you can just begin to introduce the idea that it's normal in your life. It's part of who you are to go to church. Why? Because we just go to, no, because we fellowship with each other. Because we hear the word. Because we worship. Those are important parts of our life to us. And when you tell people that's normal, you begin to open doors to have other discussions about how you handle things. I've so many times over the years had people that I've had only peripheral conversations with come to me, come to my office and sit down, wanting to talk about something going on in their life because they've seen me go through something in my life. And they want to know why it went that way for me. And they want to know a little bit. And you can begin to share. And how much you can share and what happens, that's in the Holy Spirit's hands. Paul says, I planted Apollos water, God gives the increase. I don't have to worry about that. But you decide you're going to do that tomorrow morning, and I'll bet you something goes wrong. Right? I'll bet you you don't feel like it. Right? There'll be some, you'll get into work, and what happens? There's a fire drill. Something's going on. Oh, it's the end of the world. The world's going to end today at 2.15 unless we get this done. Right? Something's going to happen to distract you from that. Start a fight. Start a fight. So there are two battles. Now, there's two sets of fruit, two results from how we do things. In 19 to 23, Paul lists them. The works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I'm going to group them sort of together a little bit. Drunkenness and orgies, okay? Sexual immorality is any sexual conduct outside of God's prescribed plan. The word any in in the original languages means any. It doesn't mean some. What about no? Any. What about no? But what if I no? Any. Any. We wonder the world is attacking the Christian, the biblical view of sex and where it belongs in this life. It's attacking that view that God laid out, the plan that he laid out. And we're on the defensive, right? We're made to feel like, oh, you're just behind. I don't care if I'm behind the times. I want to be right. Who cares? I want to be right. Any. Any act of conduct. Impurities, physical or moral. Impurity. Idolatry, the worship of false gods, putting things before God. Sorcery, not just sorcery and witchcraft. This also included, interestingly, the administration of drugs sometimes in, in doing these things. Okay? Uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, and then envy. They all go together. Enmity is hatred. How quickly, right, disagreement turns to hatred. This is easy to see in politics, right? And it feels to me, although it's always been around, if you read some of the things that happened in the early 1800s in elections, and in the, late, in the 1790s between some of the, even the founding fathers, it's pretty nasty stuff. But it feels today over my life, the things, the, the hatred. We've lost the discussion of what's really going on and trying to get to an answer because we just hate each other. Well, you know, this happens in churches. What a shock, right? There's dissensions, divisions, rivalries that go on in churches. Anytime you put two humans together, there's a problem. Sooner or later, right? Sooner or later, right? We need to fight these things. These are the works of the flesh. When these things are happening, that's the flesh. That's the flesh inside of us, okay? I mean, he puts fits of anger in here. This is beyond anger. This is sudden, uncontrollable rage. There are very few things in life that merit sudden, uncontrollable rage. Very few. And, and the funniest thing is to hear people who've done this try to explain why. You know, I'll have someone tell me, you know, maybe one of my boys, this happened and they're mad, and I go, really? 
did you live? Did you survive? And it's to give a little perspective, like, is that really worth it? Right? This is a sign of the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience. The, in the King James, the word used there is long-suffering. Okay? If you have children, you are long-suffering. How long you're suffering just depends on how old they are. Right? But you've been suffering, right? Don't worry. I'm going to make it up to you, Isaac. I'm going to take you to lunch today. I was going to take him to lunch anyway. Don't tell him. Okay? But, you know, long-suffering is a great way to describe patience. The willingness to suffer for a long time, unjustifiably, at the hands of another. It's patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Doing what you say you're going to do. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. In case the others didn't leave you, self-control. That's hard, right? It's hard to have self-control. This can come in a lot of different ways. We talked about anger. But it can come in all kinds of ways. You know, we need self-control. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Grow up. The good news is, these things are already in there. It's not like we have to go out and figure out how to get love and put it in, and how to get patience and put it in. They're there. Remember, we're made in the image of God. These things are there. It's not a question of how do we get them. It's a question of when are you going to grow up? When am I going to grow up? When am I going to grow in these things and let them develop in my life? We all start at different places. Some people are naturally more patient, for example, than others. They just are. But that doesn't mean that at salvation I have an excuse. Well, God, I'm just not a patient person. You weren't. Now you need to be. You need to work on it. That's what the Bible tells us. The fruit of the Spirit are basically what we call the communicable attributes of God. In theology, the attributes of God are divided into two basic groups. There's other subgroups, but two basic groups. Incommunicable, his omniscience, that he knows everything. His omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. His omnipresence, that he's everywhere present at once. We say he's repletively present, which means that all of him is everywhere all at once, not just a little piece of him. He's all there, all the time, everywhere. Those things can't be communicated to us by logic. It's like having a married bachelor or a square circle. Okay? God can't make other gods who are self-existent like he is. He can't communicate those things to us. But he can communicate these attributes. These are the communicable ones. Where else do we use that word? Communicable. There's some nurses here. Communicable diseases, Right? What is it about a communicable disease? You can catch it. It's contagious. It moves from one to another. These are communicable attributes that we can... They're there. They just need to grow. The germ just needs to begin to grow. It's like a boy with big feet. You ever see a boy, 12, 13, 14 years old, and he's got these monstrous feet, right? What do we say? There's a boy at the, the Finney School where my boys go, and he's a friend of ours. I won't, I won't say his name, or I'll try to keep it pretty nondescript, but... He's shot up. He's probably 6'1". I think he's 13 years old, maybe 14. And he's 6'1", at least, maybe 6'2". And he's, he weighs probably 40 pounds. He's as skinny as a rail. And he's got these huge feet. And I mentioned to Amy, we were at something, we saw him, and a couple of I said, look at him. If he turns sideways, he's an L. I mean, look at those feet, right? Now, hopefully one day, what do we say? He's going to grow into him. He'll grow into his feet. One day, maybe he'll just be a capital I. Right? Instead of an L. Who knows? Maybe, like some of us, he'll be a D. That's really sad. But either way, or a B. But um, either way, one day he won't be an L. But today he's an L, and we say he's going to grow into them. 
we need to grow into the, the attributes of God, the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, there's, there's two natures within us. There's two battles that we're fighting. There's two fruits, sets of fruits, two sets of, uh, of attributes of, of things that come out of results. And there's two ways to live. There's two ways we can live. Galatians, in that passage, it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul says we can live by the flesh. He calls that under the law. Okay, we live by the flesh. We live under the law. And the law was there to prove to us that we couldn't do it. Or we can live by the Spirit under grace. Righteousness is basically another word for acceptability, right? Righteousness is to be right, to, be, to do what's right, to do what's good. To be righteous is to be acceptable. And we all have this tendency to gravitate towards doing things our own way and our own strength and working towards being what we think in our eyes is acceptable. It's like when you're, when you're raised as a kid or when you raise kids, right? You teach them how to tie their shoes. You do it for them for a while. Thank the Lord for Velcro. But you do it for a while, right? And then you say one day, you have to do it. And they do a terrible job. And they do a terrible job for a while. It does, it's not like they do it for three times and then they're good, right? They don't do a good job for a long time. But eventually they get it. And you were taught the same thing one day. You were taught, do everything. You have to teach them how to do it. Be self-sufficient. Do it yourself. If you have children, you had to teach them one day. They're too old to, for you to give them a bath. You, look, you're 18 years old. It's too late. You've got to start taking showers. And what do you do? You start explaining, this is what you do, Right? Now, I assume this happens if you have girls. I only have boys. But if you have boys, it goes like this. And it's not just my boys, because my brothers, I was perfect. My brothers were trouble. Okay, my two brothers. And so I observed them, and I wrote it down so I could use it today. But they were really bad. You tell them to take a shower. What do you do? Okay, you say, look. You go in there. You take your clothes off. You've got to tell them that. You put them in the hamper. Well, do the best you can. Right? Right? You put them in the hamper. You get in. You move the curtain back, and you, get in the sh- you turn the water on. And when it's hot enough, or the right temperature... You pull the knob or pull the switch or turn the lever, whatever you do in your shower to make the shower come out. First, you close the curtain. You've got to tell them that, right? And you make sure it's inside the tub. This is a big thing. Otherwise, you're going to have a river that you, when you're done outside, right? You've got you to tell them that. And first, you get completely wet. You have to tell them that. That's the first thing. You get all wet all over, okay? Then you take, thank goodness for these two-in-one, three-in-one body washes. Because with boys, if you had two steps, soap and shampoo, it's over. Right? But now you can say, just take the stuff and put it in your hand. And then you've got to tell them, to, you've got to rub it into your hair. Otherwise, they'll just do this. And they'll get out. And that'll be the end. You've got to tell them, rub it in there. They've never done this before. It's not that they're stupid. They've just never done it. So their thing is, well, I usually don't pay attention. I'm usually doing something else while mom's doing this to my head. Right? And, you, and then you, now, I assume with girls, with boys, you've got to tell them all the cracks and crevices that they have to clean. I'm not going to go through a list. But you've got to tell them all of those things, because if you don't tell them, they're not getting clean. And you will find out one day if they're not getting cleaned. You'll be sitting next to them, or you near close enough, and you'll, oh, right? Your eyes will water, and you'll know, get upstairs. We've got to you know, do this a little better, right? You've got to go through all this. When it's done, rinse the soap off. You ever send a kid back up to get the soap out of their hair, right? Rinse the soap off. Now, when you're completely done, turn the water off. Don't just charge out of the shower like some swamp creature out of the swamp. Right? Pull the curtain back, get your towel, stay in there, and dry off. Right? Otherwise, like, psh, all the water comes out. Right? We know how it looks. You go through all the things. Why? To teach them 
to be because when they're married, it's going to be really embarrassing if their wife calls you and says, "What did you do with this kid? He's an idiot, right?" We try. I mean, Chuck Colson described the process of raising children as as uh, civilizing barbarians or animals, wild animals, and it's kind. Of, I mean, look, we all went through the same thing, right? If we're honest and you think about it, you can remember your mother getting frustrated with you. It's probably because you didn't rinse the soap out of your hair. So we all did it. But we spent all this time learning to be self-sufficient, and then we get saved, and the Bible tells us, don't. Don't do it on your own. Do it with the Spirit. And we become, when we do it by ourselves, we become bound by standards that we set up. We decide what's acceptable, and that's not the right standard. Tim Keller likes this quote. I've heard him use it a few times from Rocky. Rocky was, remember in the first movie of the, I don't know, 18, 19, whatever it is now. I mean, I'm sure Sylvester Stallone and Apollo Greedy have a fight in wheelchairs at some point. But um, in the first movie, he says, if I can just go the distance with him, no one's ever done that. If I can just go 15 rounds with him, for the first time in my life, I'll know I'm not a bum. Right? He'd set up that standard of acceptance. If I can just do this, everything, nothing else matters in life as long as I do this. It will prove to me that I'm not a bum. And we do that same thing. We set up standards that once you reach them, they're empty. Because that's not the standard that Christ sets. This passage is telling us that we, we live by the flesh and the spirit. And every choice we make, and it's not a binary thing where we do all one or all the other. right? We do some things in a given day. We, we operate in the spirit. We do some things, and, and the Lord works in us, and we're gentle, and we're kind. And then we do some things in the flesh. right? We do both. It's happening all the time. They're both with us. And that you can't, in the spirit, you're only going to do good works. You can't sin under the influence of the spirit. You can make mistakes, but you can't sin, right? But under the flesh, you do, we, make, we do bad things. We do things we shouldn't do. We also sometimes do good works with bad motives. We do them in the flesh. God accepts them anyway because he loves us. They're still good things, but he wants us to purify our motives and not do them out of the wrong motives. Look at any activity in your life, work, ministry, whatever you want to look at. How, how is it motivated? How's it done? When it, how's it look when it's motivated by the flesh or by the spirit? Well, the flesh tells you, if you do this, I'll, you'll be a success and you'll look good. The spirit says, if you do this, you'll honor God and you bring glory to his name. And he'll look good. The flesh says, I'll be wealthy or at least comfortable. I'll have money. I'll, I'll, I'll have safety and security. The Spirit says, I'll have resources that I can use for God's glory. I'll have what I need. I'll have security, but I have that in him anyway. But I'll have resources that I can use and give to the kingdom right, as he leads me. The flesh says, people will approve of me, and I'll have a good reputation. The Spirit says, God will approve of me, and I'll have a good reputation with him. I love the story of the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19. If you remember the story, there's these, these basically Jewish exorcists who would go around casting out demons, and they heard about Paul, and they decided one day they were going to cast out a demon using the name of Jesus Christ. And, they, and when they did, the demon, through the man, responded to them and said this. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then he beat them. It says, mercilessly, bloodied them, stripped them naked, and they went running from the house, badly beaten and, and bruised and bloody and naked. Okay? I want to be known. By the demons. I want them to say, Jesus I know. And Paul I recognize. And I know that Russ guy, because he's trouble. I don't want them to ever say to me, who are you? I don't want to be anonymous to the enemy. I want the enemy to know 
You know, when you, when you play sports, if you play basketball and you've played a team before and you go out and you, and you beat them the other time and you played well and you were the guy, they know you, right? And vice versa, when you go out there and say, oh, that guy's trouble. Number 24, he's trouble, right? You know them. The other guy, was that guy here last time? Don't be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be, I want to have a good reputation with God. And I want the enemy to know me. To know me. And look at the fruit. On one side, what's produced? Pride, envy, jealousy. The wanting, wanting a desire for riches is very closely associated with those things. Right? And the other side, you get joy, peace, faithfulness to begin to grow up. Paul is saying in, in the first verse in this piece of the passage where he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Paul is saying that since we crucified the flesh of salvation, we died with Christ to sin. The flesh no longer has the upper hand. It's not dominating us anymore. It's there, and we have to fight it. But it doesn't have the power over us that it once did, unless we let it. And then he says, since we have life, this verse he goes, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit. What he means when he says if we live by the Spirit is, we live because of the Spirit. We have life because of him. He's brought us to life and salvation. Now that we're saved, let's keep in step with the Spirit. And that phrase is, is the idea of a soldier in formation. Perfect step. Lock step. Just like it says in Philippians, right? It's God who works in you to will. Ezekiel does a great job. It says both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God changes our will. He begins as we grow in the, in the fruit of the Spirit. We grow in the Spirit, he be, and we grow up into our salvation. He begins to change our will so that it's no big deal to do God's will instead of our will because our will becomes God's will. It's not that much of a chore. So a few things to remember in, in, in how we live each day. First, the flesh and the Spirit are always both present. Augustine said this. He goes, there are two loves inside me. There is a love that loves the good, and there is a love that loves evil. The best thing I can say about myself is that there is a third passion. I have a love that loves the love that loves the good. And I have a hate that hates the love that loves the evil. I have a love that loves the love that loves the good. And I have a hate that hates the love that loves the evil. Augustine recognized in himself there's these two natures. And he wants to grow in hating the one and loving the other. That's what we need to do. That's, that's what we do with the cooperation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're trying to, to tamp down. Do we want to be distancing ourselves from the, the works of the flesh and, and, and recognizing themselves inside of us? Um, we said before, all of our actions are imperfect. Our motives are never purely perfect. We're not perfect. But God accepts them and he loves us. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He says, so that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it is really like. It is like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good in the transaction. God doesn't need our good works. They're for us. He wants us to do them. It says in Ephesians, we're his, into that same passage we've been reading, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has things for you to do that he prepared for you, not because he needs you to do them. Who can find somebody else? Right? He has them there for you to do because it's good for you to do them. 
The same reason he asked us to pray. He already knows, but he asked us to pray anyway because it's good for us to pray. So we need to think about, examine our motives. Don't let them be subtle. Don't let them hide. Constantly examine yourself and, and identify those motives. When you see fear, anxiety, and pride, those are indicators of works righteousness going on. When you're anxious about something, why? If the Holy Spirit, if you're doing it in him, you know what's going to happen. At the end. It's going to work out to his glory. When you see these things building up, it's because you're trying to do it yourself. Okay, we should look for that. How do we grow? How do we do it? I won't spend a lot of time, but we call them spiritual disciplines. They used to be called, a long time ago, the means of grace. Bible study, prayer, fellowship, obedience to the word, enduring suffering. What do they really help? There's a man who told his pastor one day that he really didn't read the word much. He said, I, just, I, don't, I can't memorize it, I can't remember it, so I just don't bother. It's just not worth it. It's not profitable for me to do it. So the pastor said, well, they were standing outside the church, and he said, here, would you take this basket? He gave him a big wicker basket. It was all dirty, and he gave it to him and said, look, would you take this around the side and, and the spigot there? Could you just fill it with water for me? Take about five, ten minutes. You could just fill it up with water. And he goes, pastor, it's a wicker basket. That's not going to work. That's stupid. And he goes, no, please, just, just do it. It's more, you, but it's not, please, just do it. So he went and did it. He filled it for ten minutes, and he tried everything he could, but, it, of course, it ran right through. After ten minutes, he comes back to the pastor, and he says, I told you, it all ran through. And the pastor said, yeah, but it's a lot cleaner now, isn't it? It's a lot cleaner now, isn't it? No excuses. He says, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? How do we keep in step with the Spirit? It's a call to be holy. First Peter says in one fifteen and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. As we close, there's a story of a father who didn't want his daughter to go out with this young man. She was going to go out with this young man in town. And um, I think it's based on an old Greek, um, Greek story. I'm not sure. I couldn't, I couldn't find it yesterday. But, but he doesn't want her to go. And he begs her because he knows this young man. And he's got a reputation. He's an abuser. He's a user. He knows what this young man has planned for his daughter, and he doesn't want her to go. But she's an adult, and he can't stop her. And he's devastated because she's going to go anyway. And he waits for her while she gets dressed. And she comes downstairs, and she's all dressed. And he goes, before you go, would you, just, would you get me a coal from the fire? And she said, well, I'm all dressed. I can't. He goes, don't worry. It won't burn you. The fire's been out for hours and hours and hours. It's cold. He says, well, Daddy, I know it won't burn me, but it'll stain. He goes, that's what I've been trying to tell you. When we get too close to sin, when we think that holiness means getting as close as we can, right up to the edge of sin, and not just stepping over. We're, we're okay here. We misunderstand sin. Sin is a mud quagmire that starts over here. And when you get to the edge, you're already in it up to your knees. It's already stained you. The question for a Christian is not, why can't I do this? It's, why should I? Why, not why not? We need to be holy. We need to turn and, and flee from sin and from the appearance of evil. And, the, and the, the final good news as a reminder in all of this is that we don't fight alone. The Spirit is always with us. He wants to fight this battle with us. We've repeated that over and over again this morning. There was an alcoholic who came to Christ. He'd been a bad drinker. And after he was saved, he was describing his conversion sometime later to one of his, his old friends. And he said, now, I mean, come on. If you have, you tell me, you're telling me that if you have a horrible day, or just a really terrible day, and you go back to your office in the evening and no one else is around, you close the door and you're in there, and you're just devastated, it was awful, you don't know what's going to happen, and you remember that there's a bottle stashed in the back of that cabinet that you'd forgotten about. Are you telling me you wouldn't take a drink? The man thought for a second. He goes, you know, everything you've said, 
Everything you said in that scenario was plausible. It could all happen, except for one thing. Since I accepted Christ in my heart, since he came to live inside of me, I'm never alone. I'm never alone. We're never alone. Wherever you are, whether you're doing good or whether you're doing evil, God is right there with you. There's no hiding from God. You can hide your sin from your family. You can hide it even from your spouse. You can hide it from your boss. You can hide it from your, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your, you know, your kids, whatever. But there's no hiding from God. He not only knows your sin, but he knows your motives better than you do. We're never alone. That's a scary thing when it comes to conviction with what I just described. But the great thing is, we're never alone. We're never alone. He's there to lift us up. He's there to encourage us. And he's there to help us to grow into our salvation. So let's just, we're going to close in prayer and we're going to have a song and we're going to end for the day. But let's just take that and decide, I'm going to start a fight. I'm going to fight the good fight. I'm going to fight the good fight. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you, by your mercy and by your grace, saved us when we were dead. We were lost, and you saved us. And we thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us there, but that you came along with us inside of us, Lord, and you you want to work with us, Father, to, to grow up into this great salvation you've given us. And Lord, I pray for myself and for each person in here that as we go out this week, Lord, you would keep put this in our hearts, that you would burn it into our hearts, that we would be aware so much more than we were before of our motives or the things that are pushing us, Lord, and we would feel the presence of your Holy Spirit inside of us, prodding us, teaching us, poking us, guiding us along, and that we begin to live the life that you have for us, which is so much better than the one we have for ourselves.